turn in God's word this morning to Psalm 139, and we read the first uh, 16 verses, and then from Romans 8, reading at verse 28 to verse 32. The words of the psalm writer David, Psalm 139, our text is the verses 1 through 6, but we'll read the first uh, 16 verses. God's holy word, to the choir master, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. In your book, <clears throat> in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And then to uh, Romans chapter 8, just a few verses, Romans 8, verse 28 to 32. Romans 8, verse 28 to 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's holy word for our hearts this morning. And at the same time, these words, uh, they challenge us to a a God-fearing humble kind of living, humility, and so forth. 
In this particular psalm, we have uh, several very important uh, doctrinal uh, uh, distinctives made concerning God, attributes, if you will, of God. We notice in the first uh, verses uh, God's omniscience being declared and taught, and secondly, God's omnipotence, and then God's uh, omnipresence, and God's righteous judgments. This morning we will deal just with that first uh, great and glorious attribute of God, His omniscience. Omniscience, children, you probably have heard that word before. It simply means the fact that God knows all things. He knows everything all the time about everything. God knows all things. But what is so neat and wonderful is that God also knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He knows us personally altogether. He knows us intimately in terms of who we are. This doctrine of God's omniscience is therefore a very personal kind of a thing. It's not just kind of in a textbook somewhere, but it's something we experience. We, we realize, we feel, we know it in our hearts. God's omniscience. Our theme this morning, as we find it in the first verse of this uh, chapter, God's perfect knowledge is too wonderful for me. We read that in verse 6, and uh, it begins with our, our first point in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Now, this psalm was written to the chief musician by David. It means this was written as a song to be sung in worship services. It was designed specifically for worship. It was a psalm that was supposed to be preached to God's people to fill them with his glorious, glorious truth. We might, we might want to call this simply applied theology. This is God's word that is to be especially applied to your heart. Something to meditate and to ponder deeply, to not forget every day. God's omniscience is all-knowing of you. David says, he has searched me and he has known me. He knows you. God examines our hearts, congregation. God investigates our lives. He knows our home life. He knows when I sit down to eat. He knows when you lie down to rest. He knows when you rise up in the morning that it's 5 o'clock or 5.30. He knows when you get out of bed. He knows what you will be about for the day. He, he knows our movements to and fro from work, from school, from shopping, from play. God knows it all together. Kids, he knows all about your playing on the playground at school. He knows how you play in your own backyard. He, he knows it all. He knows my sitting down and my rising up. David says, he knows how many hours of television you watch in a day. He knows whether you brush your teeth this morning before you came to church. All these very basic, earthy kinds of things the Lord knows. David says, O Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. We are under God's watch all the time, his benevolent watching Not only once in a while, but always. From eternity, God has known us. From eternity, he has chosen his elect. God has never learned this from anybody. 
You know, the Lord never needed a teacher or an instructor to kind of get the scoop on you and to find out what makes you tick. He needs no teacher in order to come to know you better. He knows you naturally. He knows you not in part, but he knows you exhaustively. He did not need time to try to figure me out. He knew me intuitively. He knew me instantly. He knows you effortlessly. And that makes us think, yes, there are no mysteries in my heart. There are no secrets in your heart that God does not know. No secret. No secret. Now we might think this perhaps a little bit alarming, and rightly so. But it's also very consoling. Very consoling and very comforting to know that God knows everything about us. One author says here, we are both open and naked before God. And thus David can say, not only does God know us, but in verse 2 he says he understands. And that's a very nice word to have there. He understands my thought afar off. God never misunderstands you as you are going through your life with its ups and downs. He, he reads you rightly, and he knows, he knows what you are going through. God does not misinterpret your emotions that other people might. He does not misread your thoughts, the struggles you are going through. God always gets it right. How often don't we go through troubles in life that are a result of misunderstandings that people have with us. And then sometimes conflict arises. People don't understand us or misinterpret our speech. God knows us rightly. He does not misjudge you. We think of our Lord Jesus, how he also sympathized with our weaknesses. The Hebrew writer tells us, And that same we could say about our Heavenly Father. David says, O Lord, you understand my thought afar off. You know me inside and out, O Lord. And though it seems like you are perhaps in your worlds away from me, yet you know me so well as if you're standing right beside me and you can read every thought on my mind. You might seem far away from me, O Lord, but that's not the case. David says, you've searched me. You've known me. You understand my thought afar off. In congregation, isn't that that consoling? Isn't that comforting? Doesn't that make us feel good? Makes us feel like, yes, we do have a heavenly father And we're not going to simply fall through the cracks because he was not taking care of us as he ought. They perish the thought. We think of King David who so often was far from the courts of the Lord and yet God was near him and he knew every situation, every thought David was going through when he was on the run from King Saul for almost 10 years. God was with him. And he knew David then intimately and lovingly as his dear covenant child. And God in heaven, of course, his dear covenant God. 
a gracious God, a God who, who knew David, and of course David knew him. As we go to verse 3, David continues to describe God's omniscience. He says, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Now, the old King James Version has the Lord, you compasseth me all about. Uh, the, the NIV says, you discern my path and my lying down. All the plans we wish to fulfill, the Lord comprehends. He knows how busy we are at times to make our plans come to fruition. He knows that we are being a bit of a workaholic. He knows the plans and how they need to be fulfilled and what it takes for us to accomplish them. He also knows our quiet times. He knows when we've been perhaps too lazy to do our work appropriately. He comprehends my path, that is to say that that, that, that forward motion of my life as I seek to live that life. One author says he comprehends the rule we work by. He knows the end we walk to. And he knows the company we walk with. Simply put, the Lord knows what you're up to. The Lord knows what I am up to. That word comprehend has a deeper meaning here. It has that idea of, of winnowing or sifting, like sifting chaff from the wheat. The Lord also sifts our pathways. He, he measures them in the sense he kind of holds them in the balance and he weighs our motives and so forth. And, and it's, yet it's one of understanding and that's a good word here. It's not a negative idea we have here as such. David says he understands my lying down. You might say, well, what's, what's the big thing here? Well, the Lord knows as we lie down, whether it's because of weariness or we lay down our head on our pillows at night overcome with sorrows or trials or burdens. We lay ourselves down to sleep and we're just lonely. We... We've had a bad day, and we have a God in heaven who, who understands, who knows what we went through, and he is ever a God who, in his covenant favor, is understanding and then is, is with you. I trust, congregation, this gives us pause to reflect and to consider that our God is truly a God of consolation. What can we do that God does not know anything about? Nothing. What can we hide from God? Nothing. Our tears, our sorrows, we can't hide. Our joys, our gladness, our bitterness, our bad motives. He understands. He knows. Now, this message here is not as I said a moment ago, of a negative nature, but it's positive. God comprehends my path and your path for our good. And the point I want to make here is that God, indeed, is not against us, but he is for us. Doesn't that come so true so throngly in that, 
basic description of God's covenant. I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's a very good and positive and wholesome saving kind of a statement. I will be your God. I do comprehend your path and you're lying down. Now, of course, this needs to be said too. If we are living a life of disobedience, if we've been perhaps trying to run away from God somewhat, and we're simply in a bit of a selfish selfish stage in our life where we are basically seeking to serve our own ambitions, then we may expect God's chastising hand, should we not, if he is our God? Should he not discipline those whom he loves? Of course he will. And he calls us then to repentance, to turn from our sin and to confess our sin and to seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But the point is, God is then for us, isn't he? As a loving father who disciplines his children, he is for us. Why so? Well, only because of Jesus Christ. And thus Romans, Romans 8 it comes to mind, verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then he speaks of his foreknowledge and predestinating us. And those whom he predestined, he's called. And those whom he's called, he's justified. And those whom he's justified, he is glorified. Uh, And then the next verse says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How is it that nothing can be against the believer? How is it? Well, it's because verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That speaks of a God who is with his people and who delights in his people. You see, it's only because of Christ's sin-atoning death was, was coming that this comforting Psalm 139 could be written a thousand years earlier. You see, Psalm 139 is a good thousand years in print before Romans chapter 8. And the psalm could only be written in view of what Paul would say about the Lord Jesus a thousand years later. It's because Christ Jesus rose from the grave that we have a God who indeed is with us. For Jesus Christ was raised from the grave in view of the fact he fully satisfied the wrath of God as the one who would be punished for our sins and by which our sins could be washed and cleansed and forgiven. He redeemed us from the power of sin and death and hell. That's why he could not spare his own son. If he was to spare you from your sin, then he could not spare his own son, but deliver him up for us all. Yes, how then could God be against us? And therefore, as you read these words in the beginning of the psalm, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Those ways, I mean, uh, God's, God's knowledge here shows a God of gracious love and compassion and care. A God who is with you, 
uh, people of the Lord. He is with you. And yet these truths, I trust, therefore also uh, compel us, don't they, to seek the Lord with all our heart because we have such a, such a gracious God who was not going to spare his own son for your sake. And so these words that speak of God's knowing and caring, I trust all the more would cause us to confess our sins and all the more to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have a God who's toward us. We have a God who's merciful and kind and slow to anger. A God whose omniscience is glorious in its in its working itself out in our lives. Just think. You know, we all know ourselves quite well, I would guess. But the Lord knows you thoroughly and completely and absolutely. He knows everything about us. And it's intended here for our good. David says he's acquainted with all all my ways. Congregation, this is a heart-warming, profound theology. A theology 101. First things first about God and his gracious goodness and perfect being. His knowing us. David then quickly moves ahead in verse 4. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Again, the, the same idea here is conveyed to us. <clears throat> Before we even speak a word, God already knows it. As our thoughts are busy formulating words, God already knows what those thoughts will produce in terms of words that come out of our mouth. He knows the motive behind our words. He knows the spirit with which we speak. He knows the end of our words, whether they are intended for good or for evil. God knows that for sure. He knows when our words amount to gossip. He knows when our words amount to true praise and and thanksgiving to God. He knows the character of those words. He discerns when we encourage somebody. He knows when we are putting somebody down. He knows the tenor of our speech. He knows when we bless him. He knows when we curse a neighbor. He knows it absolutely. He knows when a person blasphemes with words. He knows when we worship God humbly with words. Words of prayer, words of praise, words of thanksgiving. God never reads us wrong. David says here, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There's not a word on my, on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. <clears throat> you see how, how transparent our lives really are before God? Our thoughts, our paths, our words... It is also transparent before his omniscient, holy being. Like the author said, the commentator, open and naked before God, we are. We are. Our theme, God's perfect knowledge of me, is too wonderful for me. We'll get to that 
in a moment, but that's a truth, isn't it? And I pray that that, therefore, really humbles us too, humbles us with a godly fear and a godly behavior because, oh Lord, you have searched me. What can I say? You have searched me. What can I hide? And you know me. Then David proceeds to to speak about not only God knowing us, but what also God does with this knowledge of us. And we move in the second place then to this, that God has hemmed me in or he's hedged me in behind and before. I read here from the New King James, you have hedged me behind and before you laid your hand on me. The New English translation has you hem me in. We can say to our Father in our private prayers and say, O Father in heaven, this I know that every day or yesterday, let's say, you have known me and you have been hedging me in and behind and your hand has been laid upon me. And this is too wonderful. O God in heaven, as I pray, you may say, Lord, you have surrounded me again. You've enclosed me in. That's what that word hem or hedge here means. It presents the idea of, of you having been kept safe. You haven't been enclosed or protected or surrounded by your heavenly father. His hand was even laid upon you. David says, and that's not some kind of an imaginary, touchy-feeling kind of emotional thing that we kind of have to drum up ourselves. No, it's an invisible spiritual reality of God laying his hand upon us. Now, of course, it's figurative language. God has no hands like we do, but it speaks of his intimate, personal, close care and love to protect you. Sometimes you might lay a hand upon a brother or a sister, just a light touch, and say, hey, it's okay. I'm with you. Don't don't worry. I'll help you. Just a touch. And already that communicates something to us. Well, here we have David saying, you laid your hand upon me. And that was after he had hedged him in behind and before. We may well conclude this indeed is a work of the Holy Spirit. He who indwells us. And yet again, congregation, a a note of caution. If we are trying to avoid God, uh, we're going through a rebellious stage. I know kids, teenagers, I've been there too. You go through a bit of a rebellious stage. You want a lot of rope. You want some wiggle room to sin. You want to kind of do your own thing for a while. This is native to our sinful humanity. I get it. I I understand it. And yet please understand this at the same time too. That if we try to avoid God or slip away from him, there's really no escape. There isn't an escape. He, He hems you in. 
He goes behind you, before you, with his love, with his mercy, with his commandments. He, he does so in order to preserve you so that you don't fall into temptation and ruin your life. You know, Jesus Christ came into the world not to destroy life, but to save life. And we see that kind of characteristic here, too, with our Father's heavenly care to hedge us in, to hem us in. It made me think, of course, again of Adam and Eve and how after they fell into sin, they tried to run from God and they tried to hide to the bushes they went. But there was no hiding from God. He was hedging them in behind and before. He was not going to let them go or simply write them off. The bushes could not hide Adam and Eve. And certainly there were no fig leaves either to hide their sin. But for that, he provided the blood of Jesus to cover their own sin. Because later on, the apostle would say, he who did not spare his own son, but who delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? That already was a kind of a reality that Adam and Eve were being faced with, a gracious face-off, if you will, between God and Adam and Eve when he hemmed them in again and drew them out of those bushes and he clothed them with proper clothing that they now needed, coverings, coverings. Only the blood of Christ can cover our sin. Dear congregation of the Lord, isn't it a wonderful thing, this doing of God? Where David says, you've hedged me behind and before. You've laid your hand on me. Isn't this good? Would we really want it any other way? Imagine if God gave you so much rope that you could hang yourself with rather than hem you in to save you from your sin. You see here how God does not abandon his people because of their sin. But in Jesus Christ, he lays his hand upon us, hemming us in with his holy commandments and say, hey, you are a sinful person. You need to repent. He hems us in behind. He hems us going before us. He lays before us the blood of Christ. Uh, We see the sacraments, an expression, a vital communication of God through the sacrament of the gracious work of Christ by which he has atoned for our sin and has brought us back to himself. O congregation, be assured that as we seek the Lord, as we call upon his name, as we live in obedience to Christ, we can be absolutely convinced that God is not against us, that he is for us for good. He's for us for our glorification. Remember Paul said, those whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's past tense there in that particular verse. And yet we know we're a long ways from that glorification, yet it's as if already done. 
Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We may indeed one day share in that glory of God. Well, now lastly, what do we say about this uh, hemming in, omniscient, omniscience of God? Well, verse 6, we conclude, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. This first little stanza of Psalm 139 ends on a note of amazement and wonder. As if to say the psalmist wants to have us simply be speechless for a while, to be filled with wonder and with awe, and to simply say, this is too wonderful for me. This is too wonderful. We enjoy many wonderful things in life. We, we can go to all kinds of places and see all kinds of dazzling things, entertainment centers, things that we think, oh man, was that ever neat or cool? Was that ever wonderful? Well, here is something that is truly wonderful. And David says, it's too wonderful for me. May that be a conclusion you draw from this holy doctrine of God's omniscience, that it is too wonderful. You perhaps aren't even ready to sing about it, you're just still. In times of congregation, there's a time to sing, of course, but there's also times when we're simply told to be still, to be speechless. Be still and know that I am God. Because what we're dealing with is too wonderful for, for words. Just think of this congregation, the fact that God knows everything about me and everything about every single person. You know, we talk about all the hairs on our head, they're all numbered. Well, how many thousands of hairs of head would be on the average person's head? And then you multiply that by the billions of people on the face of the earth, and you say, now this is too wonderful for me to comprehend. That he knows every single one of those hairs. Or if we think of the galaxies that keep being found in the highest heavens, each with apparently billions of stars. The astronomers are talking about billions of galaxies. And our Father in heaven, when he stretched out the heavens, he called them all by name, and he knew every single one of them from the very beginning. And yet God is much more concerned about the hairs of your head, it seems, than the stars in the heavens because it is with you he has covenanted. It is with you whom, who, whom he seeks to be in fellowship. He even made you in his image for that very purpose. And then on top of that, to not even leave you in your sins where we rightly could have belonged to be, but to come to us in Christ and fill us with the knowledge of himself. And yes, yes, saying, I know you through and through. David says, this is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. David is simply saying, this is beyond me. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11.33, Lord, your judgments and your ways, they are, they're past finding out. They're too high. They're too lofty. 
Your knowledge is so high I can't reach it. As if to say we could even attempt to think that we could climb the ladder maybe high enough to somehow get anywhere close to where God might be and know as he knows. And we say, forget it. We, We can't even begin to think such a thought. His knowledge is infinite, utterly pure and holy and perfect and complete and is utterly beyond us. Brothers and sisters, this is our Father in heaven. I dare say he's quite something, isn't he? He alone is God. And all the gods of the nations are idols or worthless. They know not a single thing. But our Lord, who made the heavens, who alone is God, he's all-knowing, and he's all-knowing you and me. Four things I say at this point here to conclude. What a gracious blessing this is. What a gracious blessing to our souls. But also what a necessary warning to our hearts and minds too. And then third, what a saving encouragement to us to go forward. And what an enduring comfort, an enduring comfort O Lord, whom have I in heaven but thee? Because you have searched me and known me. I pray that this knowledge is also too wonderful for you as well. This glorious omniscience of your heavenly Father who is full of grace and truth for you. May you be filled with the praise Full with praise to God as you confess this wonderful doctrine, this knowledge of God, which is way too wonderful for you and I. We simply cannot attain it. Amen.